successful Californian barrister Julie Brooke writes, A trial should be like any well-choreographed event. Before the defendant is cross-examined, strategically order your witnesses for maximum impact. Open with a strong witness, first impressions count. Follow chronological order and end the public case with a powerful testimony. Create an impression that will stay in the jurors' minds forever. Well, I'm not sure if first century fisherman John had access to Barrister Brooks's blog, but certainly up until chapter 11, John has been doing all those things. For as we've seen in this trial of Jesus already, John well choreographs his defence lawyer account. He strategically orders the, the witnesses for maximum impact. Uh, firstly, he opens with a very strong witness, John the Baptist, who John 1.15 testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one who I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Secondly, in keeping with Barrister Brooks's advice, John presents the case in chronological order. He starts with Jesus' baptism and his growing ministry across Galilee, and then he records the escalating conflict uh, with the religious elites. And now, in chapter 11, uh, just before Jesus, the defendant must literally stand in the dock and be cross-examined in a Roman court by Pontius Pilate. John brings his case full circle and authenticates his first character witness. John chapter 10, verse 40, look with me. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Yet John does not leave it there, does he? Because before Jesus is, is cross-examined as defendant, and we the jury are left to deliberate as Barrister Brooke recommends John ends the public case with a powerful testimony. Before we get to the last day in Jesus' life, uh, where he will take to the stand, he creates an impression that will stay in the jury's mind forever. For here in chapter 11, uh, John records the ultimate sign. John has been mixing up character witnesses like the disciples and John the Baptist uh, with eyewitness testament to his miraculous signs. Last week we saw the first sign, water into wine. But then Jesus performs five more signs. In John 4, he heals the boy with a deadly fever. In John 5, he heals a man who's been paralysed. In John 6, he feeds 5,000 with one boy's lunch. Then Jesus walks on water. And in John 9, Jesus heals the man born blind. The miraculous signs get more and more powerful. And the eyewitness reports get stronger and stronger. But here this morning, as the jury get the ultimate sign, an impression of Jesus that will stay in our minds forever. In fact, John 12 tells us that because of what happens here, the religious teachers will furiously conclude the whole world has gone after him. So what is this ultimate sign? This final eyewitness report that, that Jesus reveals. Well, the ultimate sign is the divine dealing with death. How does the divine deal with death? 
According as we turn to John 12 now, before we unpack it, let us pray together before we begin. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we read on in John's wonderful account now, would you reveal the truth about your Son to us through your Word? Father, help us to see truth as we are those who play the jury. Help us to respond rationally, not foolishly, to separate the facts from the fancy so that we might leave here full of faith and hope of what is to come in Christ for your glory. Amen. Amen. John chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 1. Chris Dunn is going to come and read that for us now. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. The rabbi they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, 
but was still the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she had got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, uh, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. I work all day and I get half drunk at night. Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time, the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's really always there, unresting death, a whole day nearer now, making all thought impossible, but how? And where and when shall I myself die? Arid interrogation, yet the dread of dying and being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse. The good not done, the love not given time, torn off and used, nor wretchedly because an only life can take so long to climb, clear of its wrong beginnings and may never, but at the total emptiness forever the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always. Not to be here, not to be anywhere. And soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid. No trick dispels. Religion used to try that vast moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend that we never die. 
and specious stuff that says no rational being can fear, a thing that it will not fear, not seeing. That is what we fear. No sight, no sound, no touch or taste or smell, nothing to think with, nothing to love or link with, an anaesthetic from which none come round. And so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small unfocused blur, a standing chill, that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen, but this one will. And realisation of it rages out in furnace, fear when we are caught without people or drink. Courage is no good. It means not scaring others. Being brave lets no one off the grave. That was the late poet uh, Philip Larkin and how he dealt with his impending death every Monday morning. How do you deal with death? Larkin paints our often inability to deal with it. He, he writes of failing to get up for work because of it. He speaks of the horror and the emptiness of death and the physical coldness from the standing chill and, and so he fears and he ponders this, this anaesthetic from which none will come round. And also his rage. And yet his futility in being brave, for being brave, lets no one off the grave. How do you deal with death? Perhaps you just try not to have any thoughtful poetic moments. Our generation has gotten rather good at that. We rarely see death and so we often just don't think about it. Indeed, a recent report showed that almost 70% of Brits today go through each working week having never had one thought about death. Uh, only 25% of us will either even talk about our funeral. Only 33% have written a will. And 51%, that is most people, have not even spoken to their partner about death. But friends, as Larkin states, in the most honest of lines, most things may never happen, this one will. And so with a maturity that often evades our age, what is the right response to death? Well, in John 11, that Chris has just read for us, we, we see how the divine deals with death. We see a response that testifies that Jesus is the perfect man, for his dealing with death is beautifully divine. And not only that, but we see a response that testifies that Jesus is God himself, for his dealing with death is literally divine. What do we see here? Well, let's study the scene together. Firstly, we see, and must note first of all, that Jesus' first response to death is tears. Point one this morning, the tears of the loving one. The tears of, of the loving one, if you're following the outline. As chapter 11 begins, uh, we discover that Jesus is back up north teaching. Uh, for Jesus has just avoided uh, arrest by the southern cops in Jerusalem. And all is going fairly well. More and more people are putting their trust in him. But then a message comes up on the minister's mobile, a seven-word text from Mary and Martha, simply verse 3. Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 5 again tells us the significance of the messengers. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Consequently, Jesus is, is determined to go. His disciples try to warn him in verse 8. Last time we went there, Jesus, people chucked rocks at you. But verse 11, Jesus reminds them of who this is. Our friend. 
has fallen asleep. I need to wake him up. And so they head towards danger, compelled by love. And when Jesus arrives, the scene is heartbreaking, isn't it? That the loved Lazarus is, is long dead. Beloved Martha comes out bewildered and all in funeral black. And, and minutes later, the much-treasured Mary slumps down as Jesus stands and, and she sobs. Tears course down her face, just like the crowds. And so shortest verse in the whole Bible, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Why? Well, the crowd tells us in verse 36, Jesus loved him. See how he loved him. Friends, with the joyous miracle, the well-known end of the story, it's easy to miss how Jesus deals with death in the middle. And hence Jesus' strikingly beautiful response here. For here are the divine tears of the loving God. Jesus shows us that, that the godly response to death is crying. And in doing so, he shows great love. Hence two side application questions here for you. Uh, one, is Jesus' compassion here not very compelling to you? I'm not sure what picture you have in your mind when you think about Jesus. Uh, perhaps you have some kind of uh, zealous preacher who spoke of right and wrong and hell. If that is you, then on one level, you'd be correct. Because Jesus was a zealous preacher who spoke of right and wrong and hell. But that does not mean that Jesus was a man who did not love people deeply. No, he preached zealously because he loved people. And he spoke of right and wrong and hell because he loved. But particularly, John here underscores his love now. For in doing so, John helps us to see that Jesus' response to death is not the response of a heartless theologian. Jesus was no perfected robot. Uh, Jesus was the perfect man. And a man that, as we study, we should hopefully come to adore. For he was a man who obviously adored his friends. Jesus' divine response, his perfect human response to death is tears. His godly tears highlight that Jesus is the loving God. And hence that God loves his creation profoundly. The crowd calls, the, the reading calls us to, to, to say, let's see, see, see how he loved him. Accordingly, side application question number two, for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, do you see the appropriateness of tears at death? Yes, we shall see in just a, a few moments. As Christians, we may speak of funerals as celebrations, but just because we are Christians does not mean that we don't attach ourselves to people that will eventually be torn away from us. And that, if we love people like Jesus, will be heartbreaking, this side of heaven. Hence, we should never secretly conclude that funeral tears are, are somehow ungodly. Jesus is not emotionally callous here, and his people aren't to be either. As the 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, uh, preached uh, in often emotionless Victorian Britain, on this passage he said, The Son of God wept. Deep feeling, then, is not a thing of which we need to be ashamed. To be cold and stoical and unmoved in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace, No. Let us never be ashamed of walking in our master's footsteps. Let us strive to be men and women of tender heart and sympathising spirit. Well would it be if there were more Christians of this stamp and character. The church would be far more beautiful and the world far happier. And so my Christian friend, 
Don't immediately comfort your church with casual words, they are in a better place. If they are in Christ, yes. Yes, they are, and immediately so. But we who are left behind are left to weep with others. For death still wounds Christians today. Death should make us grieve if we love like Jesus. Death should still make us cry like Jesus. We are not in a tear-free world yet. The tears of the loving God point us to a divine dealing with death. But secondly this morning, the divine dealing with death is not only shown in Jesus' tears, but also in his fury. Point two, the fury of the Holy One. Uh, Point two, the fury of the Holy One. Uh, As Mary lies in a crumpled, tear-filled heap at Jesus' feet uh, in verse 33, and as Jesus hears the sobbing of those who, who, who gather behind her, verse 33 again, Jesus weeps too. But that's not all he does there. For at the end of verse 33 it says, he was deeply moved in spirit. And as he sees the two once more, we get this line in verse 38. Once more, Jesus was deeply moved. But what does this mean and how does this differ from his tears? Well, the word in the original Greek is embrima omahi. It's not a particularly easy word to say or spell, but it's actually a, a quite a difficult word to translate to because it's a fairly rare word uh, in the Greek New Testament. However, in other Greek texts, it is far more common. Uh, and there it has to do far more so with, with anger. In fact, it's a word actually used uh, to describe the snorting of a horse. And as many translations rightly here speak not only of Jesus' weeping and affliction, but also of Jesus winning and anger. John here, I think, wants us to, to, to have in our minds Jesus like a war horse, bucking its head and, and neighing at the battle line, ready to charge. But who is Jesus ready to charge at? It's clearly not Mary or Martha, he loves. Nor are there any religious hypocrites in the crowd. No, here, Jesus is mad with death itself. He is furious with humanity's greatest enemy. Jesus hates it. He snorts at it in sheer anger, and he rolls up his sleeve like a man heading towards a brawl. Why does Jesus hate death so? What I would suggest that it is not only because death seemingly shatters his dear friends, but primarily in the Bible, it is because death arises because of rebellion against God. Indeed, in Genesis 3, We get that right back at the start, don't we? God said to Adam, because you ate from this tree about which I commanded, you must not eat. To dust you shall return. Proverbs 10 says the same. The earnings of the wicked are sin and death. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin are death. And James, the brother of Jesus in James 1 says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. In God's word, death follow sin. Death is born out of of rebellion against God. As writer Dr. Stephen Lawson puts well, sin dazzles us and then delights us, but it deceives us, then it destroys us, until last it damns us. Are we not to deduce therefore that, that Lazarus committed some kind of real evil here and because of that died? However, we are to remember that that Lazarus died simply because he lived in the same world that we all live in. A world that is now filled with death because it is a world that is now filled with human sin. Why is Jesus so mad? Because Jesus is so holy. 
God is glimpsed here in in Jesus' great love for his people, but God is magnified here in Jesus' complete hate of sin and its consequences. For Jesus sees the effects of, of human sin right here, the sin that deceived and destroyed and brought death into his world, and Jesus snorts like a war horse in rage. Hence here again, we are to marvel simply at Jesus. Jesus who helps us to see that it is godly to be angry at death too. For it is godly to be angry at evil in our world. It is right to hate sin like God hates sin. Here is another divine response to death. The fury of the Holy One. And nevertheless, to be furious at sin... If you think about it in such a manner, to snort at death and then ready yourself to charge, may from another angle not only reflect something divinely enthralling and very beautiful about Jesus, but also perhaps something rather unstable. Indeed, we might imagine some funeral onlookers there in John 11 not not grasping who Jesus is and, and staring at him. As Jesus' once tearful eyes now narrow in in aggression. As Jesus moves from standing as mourner to striding out towards the grave. We imagine perhaps some pointing in embarrassment. Why is that man headed over to the tomb? Why is that man looking angry now? Why is he shouting, take away the stone, verse 38? Is this man, this loving man, this holy man, this, this, this mere man insane? Who else but a lunatic rolls up their sleeves to fight death? In the words of the most philosophical Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, death smiles at us all. All we can do is smile back. Surely snarling at death, rather than stoically smiling back, is an indication of a man gone mad. Indeed, Jesus' potential insanity here is only heightened by the timing of his arrival. Did you notice that? For to recap the earlier situation, Lazarus is not just sick now. Lazarus is long dead now. This is not just the case of a fever that will improve. This is not a coma from which he may soon awake. This is, this is, this is not Jesus arriving at the emergency room. This is not Jesus arriving at the wake. This is Jesus arriving at the end of the funeral. Lazarus's heart beats no more. And it is almost a hundred hours since it last did. Medically, his body at this point is cold and it is stiff with rigor mortis. His body would have been bloated. His internal organs actually would have already decomposed partly at this point. And bloody foam would be coming from his mouth. The smell would be absolutely unbearable. And sensible Martha knows it in verse 38. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. What is Jesus doing? There are only two answers. Either he has merely gone mad, or he is no mere man. And Jesus' response, well that only confirms the two options, doesn't it? For not only does he ignore Martha's polite request that her brother might peacefully remain in the tomb, but Jesus chides her for her lack of belief. Verse 40, did I not tell you? That if you believe, you will see the glory of God. I'm not sure if you noticed that at the beginning of the reading, but actually this notion of seeing the glory of God was was right there at the start of the chapter. In fact, it's right there throughout John. For four days before this moment, back up in verse 4, do look with me, Jesus says, 
This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It is an astounding claim, which reveals an astounding reason for Lazarus' death. For according to Jesus, this death was to be no ultimate sign of Jesus' love, although it is beautifully displayed for all to see here. The death was to be no ultimate sign of Jesus' holiness, although again, that is beautifully captivated here. Now we are told why this death occurs. It is for the glory of God's Son. Point three, the glory of the Son of God. This death has to occur to reveal God's glory to us. And the necessity of that helps us to see why Jesus has effectively orchestrated the, the whole thing. Friends, can you see that? The message comes through from Martha and Mary. We know, verse 5, that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. And so therefore we expect to read in verse 6, So, uh, therefore, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he prayed instantly that Lazarus would be healed. Or he dispatched Peter with his best medical kit. Or he jumped in his ambulance, sirens flashing. But no, verse 6 reads, So, therefore, i.e. because he loved them, when Lazarus heard that Jesus was sick, he stayed there two more days. Picture the scene. that The disciples are confused. Jesus, don't you think it's, it's time we've got to move on? Jesus, it's been, it's been 48 hours now since that 999 call. Do we really need to stay for breakfast? How does Jesus finally reply after two whole days of waiting? Verse 14. Lazarus is dead. We can jump in the car now. It is a baffling piece of timekeeping and everybody sees it. In fact, both Mary and Martha instantly recognise Jesus' tardiness in this whole affair. It's the first thing that Martha says to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Likewise, in verse 32, Mary says the same. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We may not conclude that Jesus killed Lazarus, but it is very clear that Jesus plans to arrive too late. Why? Well, in his own words, because death will display God's glory. Death will display God's glory. Jesus says, I love you, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so much. So much that I want to reveal God's glory to you through this. Friends, as we look carefully at these events, then we must realise that, that if Jesus is just a man, we are dealing with a madman, or quite possibly an evil man, or both. For what kind of mere man says, yes, I purposely aim to arrive late at the hospital so as to be the very centre of your funeral. Yet evidently, quite clearly, Jesus is no mere man. He really is, as Martha confesses in verse 27, the Son of God. That the glory of God the Father personified and this ultimate sign proves it. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Friends, in this sad funeral story, don't let the tears of, of physical emotion blur the truth of the spiritual reality. For Jesus says, look, Martha, look, look, Mary. 
Can you see? There is something even more important going on in this death. Even more important than your anguish. Even more important than your brother's agony. That this death is for God's glory. This death is for his son's fame. I love you so much that above all, I want you to grasp God's glory. According to Jesus, what everyone there needed most was shockingly not for Lazarus' heart to keep beating, but for everyone's heart to be filled with an understanding of God's glory. Christian, can you see then how this reframes all death? How it reframes our death? Death makes us cry here if we love like God, we should weep. Death makes us mad here if we hate sin like God, we should be angry. Yet death also ushers in a way for God to be glorified. For no Christian may die thinking that their death is in vain but rather that God has a sovereign plan to glorify his son through it. And that might be something that people see at our funeral after we die, through the testimony of our trust in Jesus alone. But that is certainly something that everyone will see on that final day, when Jesus gloriously comes and calls us out of the grave. Our death too on that final day will end up maximising God's glory when his son says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Come out, Jonathan. Come out, Rachel. Come out, Jerry. Come out, all who testify to who I am. The ultimate sign, the divine deals with death, and he will deal with death again. The glory of the Son is seen at Lazarus' death. Will the glory of the Son be seen at your death? The divine deals with death. It is displayed in the tears of Jesus, the loving one, and in the fury of Jesus, the holy one, and in the glory of Jesus, the son of God. However, there's a fourth aspect to this testimony, which not only validates Jesus' claims of divinity, but one which pushes all of us, the jury, into a decision. The ultimate sign creates an impression, as we thought about at the start, creates an impression that will stay in the jurors' minds forever. Point four, the call of the believable one. Point four, the call of the believable one. A few weeks ago, the BBC interviewed Mrs. Alison Rundle. Uh, Alison is a 57-year-old lady from Durham. And in a very moving interview all about losing her 25-year-old daughter, Alison clearly struck a chord with many readers when she confessed to calling her daughter on the phone for days after her funeral. Alison would call her daughter and ask her things like, where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Come back. But in her heart of hearts, Alison always knew that her calling was hopeless. She hadn't gone mad. In her own words, I didn't call hoping she would answer. I knew she wasn't there. The very crescendo of this passage Jesus, after calling out to his father, calls out to Lazarus. One can only imagine the tension of the scene now in verse 42. Lazarus is dead, and a crowd who know it has gathered. Jesus set unbearable expectations for his dear friends, and the tombstone has now been rolled away. People put their hands up to their noses, 
And Jesus calls out in a loud voice, verse 43, Lazarus, come out. Is this the mandate of a madman or the call of the creator? There's a pause and then a rustling. The sound of linen, perhaps against stone, can faintly be heard and then footsteps that get nearer. And then verse 44, the dead man came out. Jesus called the dead, and the dead picked up, and the dead walked out. And in love, Jesus says, verse 44, take off the grave clothes. And perhaps almost still in anger at death, Jesus says, verse 44, let him go. And the glory of God is seen just as Jesus had planned. However, Jesus' divine call over death was not only for his glory, for his benefit, No, it was also for the benefit of the people there. Indeed, that is precisely what Jesus says in verse 42. I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe. And again, we see this has been purposed all along. For in the same way that we see Jesus planning this death to bring about his glory, so we see right back at the start Jesus planning this death to bring about his friends' trust in him. Verse 14. Two days before Jesus calls Lazarus out, Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you might believe. This death occurs that Jesus might display that he is divine. That Jesus might display that that he is, is worthy of belief, for he has power to raise from death. His call is the call of the life giving God. His call makes his divinity entirely believable. As Jesus brought light, life from the darkness in Genesis 1, with the simple command, let light come out, that we might believe in him as we see life around us. So Jesus brings life from the dead in John 11, with the simple command, Lazarus come out, that we might believe in him as we see his resurrection. Verse 25 famous words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, I don't know if Martha really believed in verse 27, but I trust that she was one of those ones in verse 45. Verse 45, therefore, as a result of Jesus' call, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. And what about you? One who has also seen this morning, having read the eyewitness reports, that the risen Lord Jesus stands before you and says, I am the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? What would you say? Well, one thing is absolutely for sure. We cannot simply leave John 11 in the ultimate sign category, like a piece of of significant evidence in a trial where it does not really matter what conclusion we come to or whether we even decided to turn up for jury service. John 11 must be placed in the urgent sign category, 
For here, Jesus delivers an urgent piece of information that demands an urgent response from all, whether we want to be in the jury box or not this morning. Final question then, with just a few minutes remaining. What is the right response to resurrection? What is the right response to resurrection? In the end, there are just two responses, aren't there? And in the same way that everyone in this room uh, will leave for home in one of two categories, so the people outside Lazarus's tomb left for home in one of two categories. And as we've already seen, the first people to leave, verse 45, leave relying on Jesus. Living for the last day. They leave relying on Jesus and living for the last day. Those Jews there who started that day, perhaps like us this morning, with theological questions about God's power to save, no longer leave anxious. They see the power of Jesus' call and they rely on him in death. Are those Jews there who perhaps started the day feeling very frail, perhaps like us this morning, knowing, leave knowing that they were in their last days and they leave anxious no more. They see the power of Jesus' call and they rely on him in death. Those Jews there who started the day perhaps deeply missing loved ones who had trusted God in the past, perhaps like us this morning, leave no longer anxious. They see the power of Jesus' call and they rely on him in death. But not only do they rely on Jesus, but I imagine that they start to live for that last day. Indeed, when Lazarus died again, a few years later, a few years after Jesus died, I often wonder how Martha would have responded this time around. Yes, no doubt she would have cried godly tears again, for she loved him. Yes, no doubt she would have been righteously angry. She hated the the, the sin that caused human death. But I imagine that her response would, would not have been exactly the same response as recorded in verses 21 to 24, where Martha is, is rather annoyed that Jesus is not around. Where when Martha says, verse 24, I, I, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection of the last day, but honestly, Jesus, I don't really care about this last day. I want him here. I want him here right now. Now, I imagine that that as Martha remembers Lazarus' first death and Lazarus' first resurrection, that Martha becomes increasingly excited at seeing him rise again at that resurrection at the last day. Friends, can you see that the beauty of this particular day in Israel is that it orientates us to that last day? The beauty of this day is that it takes our eyes away from the heartbreak of this world and today. And it pushes us on. It pushes us on to consider that last day when we shall be called out of the grave if we rely on Jesus. That last day when we shall rise like Jesus, the the conqueror of death. My Christian friends, what a joy. What an absolute joy to leave here having studied the evidence for Jesus on Sunday morning that we may not wake up like Philip Larkin used to do on Monday mornings. What is the right response to this resurrection? It is leaving, relying on Jesus this morning and living for that last day tomorrow morning. My friends, won't you do that? We do that. But sadly, I know that many of you here may not. For that is not how all people respond to Jesus, is it? Many leave believing verse 45, but verse 46, 
but some of them went to the Pharisees. And they told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. As has been the case throughout the centuries, many see the resurrection and yet they reject Jesus. And what is striking is that they don't reject Jesus on the grounds that there's not enough evidence. No, these rejectors of Jesus admit, don't they, at the end of verse 47. Here is this man performing many signs. They actually do not say that this, this ultimate sign is unbelievable. They actually believe those who testify to the sign. But they do not believe that God has done it. They say, verse 47, here is this man. They're unwilling to trust Jesus' divinity. They're unwilling to accept that the divine will deal with death. And so they forfeit that last day because they are more concerned about today. Did you notice that in verse 48? Do you notice why they reject Jesus? Why they are concerned with their own reputations today. Jesus is a threat to their own authority today. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And they are concerned also for their own safety today. Jesus is a threat to their easy life today. They say then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Where will we be then? They reject Jesus because they are living for today. In 1989, a rock star by the name of Ian Brown had just hit the heights. He was becoming one of the biggest uh, well-known names in the UK music. He just signed a massive record deal that would keep him comfortable for the rest of his days. And he was walking past the church one day. And there he saw the words of John eleven twenty-five 25. On an old church poster. And he thought of his comfortable rock star lifestyle. And he thought of his own soaring authority. And in his own words, he decided to write a song to let everyone know how false Jesus' statement was. The Enemy magazine place the song at number eight in the list of greatest indie anthems. The lyrics go like this. Your face, it has no place. No room for you inside my house. I need to be alone. Don't waste your words. I don't need anything from you. I don't care where you've been or what you plan to do. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Ian Brown rejected Jesus Christ. He did not care where Jesus had been, he did not care what Jesus was planning to do because he wanted to be the resurrection and the life. Ian Brown is now 55 years old. Sadly, I think that he is still rejecting Jesus and what Jesus plans to do for those who rely on him. For sadly, like the Pharisees, as, as far as I know, Ian Brown still thinks that his own power is greater than Jesus'. Jesus who has the authority to call to life. And he still seems to find more comfort in fleeting things than the comfort in Jesus who can raise from death. And maybe if you're very honest here, that is what you are thinking this morning. A prayer does not. But maybe you reject Jesus because you are out for today. And so you try to remove all those Philip Larkin moments when the reality of death sweeps into your minds and you, you sing along with Ian Brown, I, I, I am the resurrection 
I am the life. But friends, what evidence for that belief is that? Philip Larkin died in 1985. Ian Brown will die in a few decades. Soon you and I will go to the grave. But Jesus, the divine one, is the one who has dealt with.